HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed on to the plan, like Nam Wa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. It is infuriating but unsurprising that Trump's Economic Council for Restaurants was made up almost entirely of old white men. A council meant to represent the needs and voices of millions of restaurants and their employees has a total lack of diversity. The council does not have a single woman or independent restaurant operator. Instead, it is a collection of fast food CEOs and a few white tablecloth celebrity chefs. Surely not a single one of these men agonized over a PPP application or fielded direct calls from terrified employees looking to understand unemployment. Small owners and operators, frantically awaiting government assistance and guidance, do not see themselves represented in that group. On this week's episode, we hear from two industry leaders that can speak to all types of operators, ranging from folks like myself just starting out in the business with a small staff to those seasoned independent operators with hundreds of employees. Today's guests have thrived and persevered through decades of restaurant ownership, through earthquakes, riots, 9-11, and fires, and they know the ups and downs of running a food business at various price points and styles, as well as anyone in the hospitality profession. Susan Finneger and Mary Sumilikin have been business partners for over 35 years and operate full-service restaurants, food trucks, and fast-casual concepts. During the interview, Mary Sue points out, I don't think our government understands small businesses. Never has that been more clear than with the chaotic rollout of the stimulus package, which has seen millions awarded to large corporations like Potbellies and Ruth Chris, while real small restaurants and independent operators were forgotten. On today's episode, Chef Susan Finneger and Mary Sue Milliken sharing their experiences and strategies over the last few weeks as COVID-19 overtook Los Angeles and Las Vegas, forcing them to shutter all their locations and furlough over 300 employees. I remember like, honestly, like two weeks before, uh, Niall Parks, who's our VP of operations, was talking about, because things were sort of 
seeming like they were slowing down a bit. And there was just sort of this discussion about the virus. And we were all just, because we had just opened Sokolo, you know, end of December. So we were all at Sokolo at that time. And he was talking about how, you know, we might have to really cut back on staff and that he felt like this was going to really affect our business. And I remember sort of thinking, oh, that's crazy. There's no way it's going to affect us. We're a new restaurant. We're very busy. And I remember sort of not quite getting, you know, understanding what was about to happen. Right. We had been so busy with the opening of Socolo and Socolo opened with a real bang. I mean, we were doing huge sales um, for the first seven weeks or eight weeks, and then we closed. But I think at, at all three of our big restaurants, you know, it was kind of like running off a cliff. I mean, sales would drop by 50% overnight and then do the same thing again the next night. And so then I think we didn't have a lot of time to assess the situation. We just had to sort of, you know, make decisions on the fly pretty quickly when we, we decided to open Border Grill, or I'm sorry, to close <laughs> Border Grill downtown we had just seen like three days in a row where the sales were 50% less than the day before. And, you know, we were already hemorrhaging money on those last four or five days. So we didn't have much of a choice than to just uh, say we have to close until we, you know, until further notice. Of course we thought it would be for a couple of weeks. (laughs) And that was, I think that was Friday night. But and so Saturday we were still open at Sokolo and Sunday we were still open, but we were so slow. And so at that point we were talking about okay, this is we're gonna have to really figure out what to do here. And then Sunday night is when the mayor did the announcement. So then there for us, we went a little bit back and forth on, you know, closing completely doing delivery. We're right across the street from the hospital at Sokolo. But so we sort of made that decision that for the safety of our staff and not understanding yet the disease and what was happening, what this virus was, and would we be putting our staff in danger by staying there and working even to do delivery? Because we have a pretty strong delivery business with, especially with all of the hospital business around there. But we made that decision that it would not, we felt we weren't comfortable doing delivery until we understood better what was going on, at least at Socolo. And at that point, we weren't yet closed in Vegas because we didn't know what was happening exactly. So we weren't closed Sunday night like we did, made the decision Sunday night in LA. Okay, we're done. We're closed at Socolo completely. But by Monday morning, there was, you know, the occupancy, the occupancy at the hotel. Yeah, Mandalay Bay was dropping and we got a call from the president of the hotel saying they expected things to be okay through the week, but they were going to be closing down at the end of the week. They were going to be closing down many of their restaurants and they had some conventions that were canceling and were near the convention center. So they felt like we might want to reconsider what our hours were. That was, that was before 
that was maybe, I can't remember if that was Monday or Sunday he called. But then by Tuesday, the whole strip was closed down. The city was closed down in Vegas. Do you think that any of these past events provided any type of positive experience that you're now relying on? Or is this just such uncharted territory that the riots and earthquakes and 9-11 doesn't actually prepare you for what has happened? Well, I will say the riots, um, the riots were probably the biggest thing and close, I mean, certainly way less time, but the riots. And then when there was a curfew put on us that, you know, and we basically, you know, you had to be out of the restaurant. So for a few days, it had a similar kind of effect, but that was a few days and people weren't out of work. The, the hardest thing about this right now, I mean, what we do know and what we respond to quickly when things get bad is we react very quickly. We, we, we cut back on staff. We cut back on hours. We, uh, you know, we let people go if that's what we have to do. So we are very comfortable tightening our belt and knowing that's what has to be done for us to survive. So throughout different times when things have happened, for example, in Santa Monica, we, um, when the earthquake happened, our whole front of our whole building was scaffolding for months and months and months. So our business was way down. So we, Mary Sue and I jumped in, you know, in filling roles that we hadn't typically filled. You know, I would say that um, all of the experiences that I've had over the last 39 years as Susan's partner and, you know, navigating the business of our restaurants has d definitely come in handy this last few weeks. I mean, I can't imagine being a 25 or 30 or 35 or 40 year old, you know, restaurateur and trying to navigate all this. It's, I feel lucky that I've got, I've got lots of experiences to draw from. So I, I, I think I'm less panicked. So there's no question that, um, I think we have known hard times and we have seen things happen to the business where even, for example, where, you know, when we shut down city and things were slow at Border Grill, we literally, you know, Mary Sue and I jumped in where, you know, you'd answer the phone as the catering person you know, the general manager taking reservations. So I feel like we we are comfortable sort of being in a position where we do everything. So I think we're flexible in that way. And we've learned that from that's how you survive. And I think that's true. That's how we've survived 39 years. <coughs> Across all the restaurants, how many, approximately how many people uh, did you have on staff before you had to close everything down? Around 350 had, or yeah. so. Yeah, 350. And they all got laid off in the course of, you know, 36 hours. Or furloughed, some, mostly furloughed. When you're having these discussions uh, post-closure and you're talking uh, about what your plan is moving forward, uh, who 
Are, do you have a, a a CEO or a leadership team beyond you two that that you uh, run these discussions by, or is it you and a lawyer? Like, I guess what I'm asking is, when you're trying to plan what you're going to do uh, 30 days, 60 days, six months from now, who exactly are you talking to, and how are you planning for the future when you will potentially reopen your businesses? Well, I, I think that the when we are making these kind of decisions originally, it's myself and Mary Sue, our VP of operations and our controller. We're looking at our financial position and what does that mean if we keep everybody on health insurance? What does that cost the company? What are we dealing with when we're dealing with rent. And when it comes to our landlords, we go to our lawyer, who's been our lawyer for many, many years, to look at our lease and what's our position. When we're talking about furlough or laying off staff, we go to our labor attorney to just understand what we're doing. So, But really, the key people that are in this, other than that we do get advice from these outside people, are Mary Sue, myself, our VP of Ops, and our controller. I mean, we're a small little team, for sure. And I think um, I've found that the restaurant industry has really um, done an amazing job of rallying and, you know, becoming, coalescing around this disaster for our business. And so I get a lot of advice and I hear a lot of wise things. I probably go to two or three uh, webinars a day that I just listen in on or I listen to the recording of it. And then um, it really, you know, some things are useless, but other things really kind of, you know, help spur ideas about how we're going to deal with our business. One thing I heard today was really good was... um, you know, when we, we have to reimagine our businesses, each one of them, like our businesses in Vegas is different from, which is very much convention uh, focused, is very different from our kind of, you know, little California canteen and Mexican microbrew pub um, at, in Santa Monica that's brand new. And they're, you know, one's 22 years old and one's two months old. So just reimagining how we're going to deal with a world that is a little bit less physical, (laughs) Um, you know, and how do we, how does food fit into that? And how can we, like, when we do reopen, there's going to be a certain amount of time where people are going to really be, um, I think that we're going to project about 50% of what we did last year for the opening couple of months. So, you know, that's a very, very pared down bit of business. And then also be really creative about how to, um, you know, figure out if there's other avenues that we can sell food down rather than, you know, a busy restaurant and a jam packed bar and, you know, hop in music and, you know, that I'm not sure that's going to be that popular in the coming months until people get comfortable and there's a vaccine and there's a a kind of a way forward. We're going to take a quick break. More discussion with Chef Susan Finnegar and Mary Sue Milliken after these messages. Stick with us. Ben's Friends is the food and beverage industry support group offering hope, 
fellowship, and a path forward to professionals who struggle with substance abuse and addiction. Ben's Friends exists to provide a safe haven and an anonymous, judgment-free forum for workers in an industry that has one of the highest rates of substance abuse in the country. Their mission hasn't changed during quarantine. Ben's Friends chapters across the country are now offering online meetings. You can find a chapter near you at benfriendshope.org. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. We pick up our discussion with chefs Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Finnegar talking about the government stimulus package. Back to the interview. Well, we've been the last three weeks obsessively learning as much as we can about the stimulus plan, the care package. We've been on it like from day one. So we have been really pushing with our banker, with our insurance uh company, our particular uh, broker, he's been extremely helpful with um, understanding what our position is. So we have been very on top of this uh, from the beginning. And we have gone forward with our bank in putting in the PPP loan applications. We are also, you know, putting in for a grant from the county, if the county can get it together to figure out how to apply, which they've there's been a problem with, and then we're also looking for, through the city um, to try to to also look at their loan. So we are, I think, we're very on top of it because we're trying to look at how can we protect ourselves, protect the company, so that we make sure we can open and bring everybody back to work. But it is challenging for sure on how these, especially the stimulus plan and how it is effective for small businesses like ours. Yeah, I I feel like the PPP loans are going to evolve as the, you know, as we learn more about this virus and how we're going to be able to deal with it. So some of the restrictions that are uh, written in it now potentially could make those loans, you know, not worth a lot to us um, because the, you know, the, the limitation of having to, you know, the first eight weeks, you have to bring back 75% of your staff or 80%. And, and it, you know, it's a kind of a random start time um, depending on when you get your loan, but you know, we may not be able to reopen until mid June, um, and, and those loans are dependent on an eight-week period between April and the end of June. So it's hard to say really yet. I think, um, you know, the lawmakers are trying to figure out how to help small businesses. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think our government understands small businesses you know, the like seat of your pants entrepreneur, like scrappy, you know, which is so many businesses, not just restaurant businesses, but, you know, hair salons and, you know, liquor stores and all that. Um, We're just entrepreneurial, yet I don't think our government can really wrap their heads around how to support us yet. Do you have fears that 
people will just in general not return at all to restaurants? Or do you think it'll be a short window, maybe six months where people are a little weary of going out and then things will return back to pre-COVID normalcy? Or do you think that this has fundamentally altered the hospitality industry forever from the way that people will interact with restaurants and bars? I I mean, I have to say, I do not think that it will permanently change how people will interact. Will it for the next six months? I think it will will have an effect because people are going to be tentative, I believe, to go out. Particularly like at Sokolo, we have a lot of communal tables. So it will be interesting to see how that affects people. And I think for the next six months, for sure, I, I can't imagine it would be the same. But I believe in time, it will go back to what it was. I, I think we ha- they, there are these things that happen over years. I mean, we haven't seen it on this level, but I believe, you know, maybe it'll be not until there's a vaccination or maybe it'll be, you know, I'm not exactly sure when, but I, I don't see the restaurant industry changing and being a different industry in the way that people communicate and go out and socialize down the road. But for now and how long, I don't know. I agree. I I really think that um, the restaurant, the act of going out to eat and gathering in a public place together to be restored and go to a restaurant and, you know, that's going to, People love it too much and it's too important. It's too much a part of our social fabric. So I don't think that'll go away. I think we're going to have a rough year ahead. And um, I think we're going to have to really be nimble and adapt to if we want to survive. And so that's, you know, something that we have to really focus on. But I definitely, um, I definitely think it's always going to be a part of our our, you know, society. The one thing I have sort of a, a deep wish for, which is, you know, this, this disaster has exposed some of the huge weaknesses in our industry, you know, being so dependent on so many undocumented workers and on so many people making minimum wage and, um, you know, all being thrown out of work at once. Um, I, I think it's, shined a spotlight on the disparity in our uh, industry. And I, I would love to, I mean, this is a pipe dream fantasy, but wouldn't it be nice if, you know, we could all come together and say, okay, let's, let's get rid of the tipping model. Let's just do something that's really fair for all the restaurants and all the people who work there to make it a success. Um, I just think that would be, you know, a gr- this would be a great opportunity to reboot and have a restaurant industry that has a little, that's really not based on that archaic old fashioned, you know, uh, system, which, you know, breeds bad behavior. Um, and after the me too movement and after, you know, this disaster, and I, I really am, I'm kind of always been a forward thinking person, but what, wouldn't that be just a great thing if we could just say, okay, let's get rid of tipping across the board and let's, let's make this into an industry that's super professional. And it really, you know, 
recognizes the value of everybody who makes your dining experience great. Yeah, I think the disparity of, you know, servers going home with two or three hundred dollars and, you know, runners or cooks or, you know, line cooks going home with a hundred dollars is just wrong. I do hope that there is the opportunity for uh, a shift in thinking. And if there is maybe a takeaway from what's happening, it's that the consumer is now reading the news and truly understanding what the cost of operating a restaurant is. Well, at least they have a maybe a slightly better insight into the, uh, the, the margins of a restaurant and also the amount of people that have to work at a restaurant that really their life relies on that paycheck, that weekly paycheck. Um, I Do you think that there's any way that moving forward that there can be sort of an educational aspect built into a restaurant, whether, I mean, I know in LA that occasionally people put on the bottom of their menus that, you know, a percentage of um, your bill will go to our staff fund or a staff healthcare fund. Do you think that there is now an ability to take things a step or two further by letting the consumer know um, we've decided to raise our prices in order to accommodate for cost of living. So, you know, basically just building on what you said, do you think that there's an ability to um, now transfer some of that responsibility truly to the consumer and let them know that um, restaurants are expensive to operate and that you want to pay your staff more and that they need to be a responsible diner in order for you to do that? Yeah, I think that is that the, this may this disaster this that might be part of the silver lining that we are able to create in our industry because the the food at restaurants has been artificially low priced for a long time. Um, not all restaurants, but uh, our restaurants have never been. Uh, I would never have put them in the category of expensive. They've always been an average check of you know at dinner, including cocktails and drinks, like between 30 and 40 or even 25 and $40, depending on, you know, Vegas is more expensive. But uh, yeah, I think those are artificially low prices and the consumer, um, I, I don't know how willing they are to pay more though. You know, Eli, I just, I worry I, as a, you know, as a. Well, particularly, particularly I think for, us, one of the struggles that I think we've always had is that because we are fancy and because we've we've sort of prided ourselves in not being that, and because we're Mexican, there is a sense out there that there's a limit on what what can be charged for our food. And whether we're known chefs or you know, on TV or any of that, there still is a sense that Mexican food should not be a, a certain price point. Now, possibly if you have all of the things that surround it, you know, that make it very, very high end feeling, but in terms of the cost of labor, in terms of cost of the food, it's just as expensive for us to run as many restaurants to run. But there is a stigma that I think is around uh, ethnic food that um, 
that is challenging. And we've seen it when we when we do catering. We've seen it where people are price resistant. So how and and also we've seen pushback when you put at the bottom of the check, you know, a certain amount is going to go to, you know, take care of the environment or a certain amount is going to go towards healthcare. We hear other restaurateurs who complain that their customers complain about that. And so it's a, it's a challenge, but I think there may be an opportunity there to be able to try to look at that and how to address it in a way where people might understand it better now given the amount of people that are good, that are going hungry without supplies. And, you know, part of it is, you know, the unemployment insurance and how that works and how many workers in this industry are not able to get unemployment right now. It's a huge percentage. I want to ask about Los Angeles as a food community that you've been part of for such a long time. Uh, In New York, what I'm seeing is that this has been actually an opportunity for uh, chefs and owners that may not have previously interacted. Maybe they didn't know each other. They weren't in the same part of town. They weren't the same price point. uh, And they just maybe didn't have a reason to talk to each other. They're now all joining together and you're seeing a huge amount of unity in people that are now sharing and being very open in an industry that to me had felt like it was pretty siloed and closed off where folks didn't really share internal discussions and internal information. Are you seeing now that there's greater collaboration happening in Los Angeles? A a food community that I've always felt has been a lot more open than other cities. Are you seeing that it is now even more uh, united? Well, yeah. I mean, we have. I've I've always noticed a difference between the East Coast and the West Coast in in terms of, um, especially twenty thirty years ago, even more so. Um, it was more cutthroat back east and much more kind of kumbaya out here, like just everybody very open, very generous, willing to share all kinds of resources, business, purveyors, anything. Um, But I think this disaster has brought us together in a kind of a a way where it's also like some very... um, young people as well as you know old timers like me and Susan and everybody kind of talking to each other and texting and reaching out so it's definitely um it's increased the amount of interaction between us all trying to navigate and figure out these um uncharted waters well and you know what's it's interesting that you say that you know Eli because I agree. I mean, Mary Sue and I have had for all these years, and certainly back in the beginning, where we would call any number of people, Wolfgang, you know, Piero, Bob Spivak, Joachim, we all, you know, Suzanne, everybody, we would communicate all the time if questions or needed help or it just was, it was a really very strong community. What I feel like this has done, it's been interesting, is particularly for the younger restaurateurs, I think this has probably really brought 
them into into uh, a situation where people are closer and you know creating those relationships more so. Certainly, LA has always felt like it's a very warm. You know, whether it's competitive, obviously it's always competitive, but a really helpful environment. And this, I think, for the younger generation has probably brought that way more to the forefront. That's great. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me. Uh, I obviously, I'm I'm hoping that everything can return to normal and that we can all reopen all of our places and back all of our staff as soon as possible. But in the meantime, I hope that uh, you all are staying safe and that uh, your staff is safe as well. So thank you again for taking out a little time to speak with me. Absolutely. Thank you, Eli. It's always a pleasure. The Line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, We at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the ways that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how this crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate.